For most of us, waiting is a waste of time. We don't like to wait in the checkout line at the grocery store. We don't like to wait on the phone for the next available operator. We don't like to wait in stalled traffic. We don't like to wait to be seated at our favorite restaurants. We don't like to wait for two to four weeks for the results from our doctor. We just simply don't like to wait. The truth of the matter is we would much rather prefer instant messages, pay at the pump, automated bank drafts, self-checkout lines, and immediate results. If that's true in the physical realm, I suspect is also true in the spiritual world as well. We don't like to wait even on God. With that in mind, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to two sacred sentences in Holy Scripture. Genesis chapter 40, verse 23, through Genesis 41, verse 1. Today we continue our eight-part sermon series on the life of Joseph, lessons on faithfulness and forgiveness. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Genesis chapter 40, verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. This morning when we catch up with Joseph, he's incarcerated for a crime he did not commit. He's waiting for God to exonerate him. You may recall that Joseph was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. They sold him to a band of Midianite merchants traveling from Dothan to Egypt. Once they arrived in Egypt, they sold Joseph to a man by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar is described as the chief executioner, the captain of the guard in Pharaoh's army. Potiphar was a hard man with a hard job. And now Joseph was his property. But the Lord was with Joseph. In fact, everything Joseph touched turned to gold. This did not escape the observation of Mr. Potiphar. So he eventually said, I give you all control of Potiphar House Incorporated. You have control of everything from uh, the servants in the field to the servants in the house, all of the business ventures, even my financial portfolio. And with Joseph in charge, the only thing Potiphar had to decide was what was he going to eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Now, everything was turning a profit. Life was looking up. Things were going well for Joseph, the Hebrew slave. And not only did he catch the attention of Mr. Potiphar, but for other reasons, he caught the eye of Mrs. Potiphar. Mrs. Potiphar took note that Joseph was well-built and handsome. And repeatedly, she tried to seduce him. But repeatedly, he refused. One day, she set a trap. Joseph ran, she screamed, and then she made up a false story of rape. 
It's that false allegation of rape that lands Joseph in jail. Now, you and I know that Joseph didn't do anything wrong. He's done everything right. He's a man of charisma and a man of character. We expect God to exonerate him because of his faithfulness. Yet here we catch up with Joseph, and he's still in jail. At the beginning of Genesis chapter 40, we're introduced to two of the cellmates of Joseph. We don't know them by their name. We only know them by their profession. There's the cupbearer and the baker. Both the cupbearer and the baker were two of the most trusted individuals in Pharaoh's court. But apparently they had done something and caused Pharaoh to blow his stack. He got mad and so he sent them to jail. These two guys were prominent individuals in the court of the king. After all, you realize that Uh, The easiest way, the most efficient way to assassinate a Pharaoh is through food poisoning. And so the Pharaoh has to trust whoever makes his food. That's the baker. He also has to trust whoever brings him his drink. That's the cupbearer. And so, because the cupbearer and the baker were such trusted individuals, you can well imagine that they not only helped in decisions of culinary delight, but also they probably engaged the Pharaoh, and Pharaoh engaged them even on the daily politics of life in Egypt. They were trusted individuals. But something happened. Pharaoh got mad. He threw them in jail. I don't know why. The Bible doesn't tell us why. Maybe maybe the baker burnt his toast. Maybe the cupbearer was a little late in bringing the morning coffee. I don't know why. But for some reason, Pharaoh threw both of them in jail. One day, Joseph was attending to his responsibilities And he bumped into the cupbearer and the baker right there in the Taj Mahal of the dungeon. He noticed that their faces are downcast. They're depressed. They're sad. He asked them, why are you so sad? Why is your face so downcast? And they said, well, both of us had a dream last night. And neither of us can make heads or tails of the dream. Now, while we used to serve in Pharaoh's court, we had at our disposal some of the greatest magicians and sorcerers and spiritual leaders of our nation. Some of the greatest counselors of the country were right there in Pharaoh's court. They could always interpret what was going on inside of us. But but now here we are in jail and we have no one to interpret these dreams. And it's really driving us crazy. And Joseph responded, Don't interpretations belong to my God? Tell me your dream. Now that's a fascinating statement because Joseph could have become a bitter man, right? He's in jail, not because he did anything wrong, because he did everything right. He's in jail waiting for God to exonerate him. He's in jail waiting for God to show up over the horizons, bring the keys of the prison, and let him loose. He's waiting on God, and he's waiting on God, and he's waiting on God, and he's waiting on God. And God has not shown up yet. He could be a very bitter man, but he's not. What's he doing while he's waiting? What would you be doing while you're waiting? Maybe you would be angry. Maybe you would be uh, just frustrated. Maybe you'd be just just, uh, aggravated with the Lord. Maybe you would be just spouting off nonsense. Not Joseph. While Joseph is waiting, he's witnessing. He says, don't interpretations belong to my God. Tell me your dreams. 
Another reason why this is so astounding is because we don't even know if Joseph's very good at interpreting dreams. Up until this point, the only dreams he's interpreted are his own, and we don't yet know if those dreams are accurate. We don't know if those dreams are going to come true. For all we know, he's lousy at interpreting dreams. Yet he says, don't you know that the interpretation belongs to my God? You tell me your dream, I'll tell you what God says. Because even while I wait, I'm going to witness to the goodness and greatness of God. Even while I wait, I'm going to bear testimony of just how awesome God is. You tell me your dream, I'll tell you what God says. So it's the cupbearer who begins. He said, I was standing there. And in my hand was Pharaoh's cup, and before me was a vine. It had three branches. On those three branches, there were buds and blossoms and a eventually a beautiful cluster of grapes. I went up to them, I squeezed the grapes into the cup of, that was in my hand, and then I turned and I gave it to Pharaoh. What's all that about? And Joseph said, well, the three branches are three days. And in three days, Pharaoh's going to lift up your head. You're going to get your old job back. You're going to go back into the court of Pharaoh. And when you go, don't forget your old good friend, Joseph. Don't forget me here in jail because I'm here, not because I've done anything wrong. I've done everything right. And I want you to speak a good word to Pharaoh. You promise me that when you're in the court of Pharaoh, you'll give a good word on account of me. And the cupbearer said, hey, if what you say comes true, I promise you, I will speak a kind word on your behalf in front of Pharaoh. The baker thought to himself, well, that went pretty well, so uh, I'll tell you my dream. You're favorable towards the cupbearer. Maybe you'll be favorable towards me. So the baker steps up, and he says, I too had a dream, and on my head were three baskets of food, some of the choicest food of Egypt, all the things that Pharaoh loves to eat. And in the top of the highest basket, there was a bunch of bread and delicacies, and all of a sudden, ravens came and began to eat the bread right out of that top basket. What does that mean? And Joseph looked at the baker, and he said, I'm sorry, baker, but your buns are done. Those three baskets are three days, and in three days, Pharaoh is going to lift off your head. You are going to be executed. He's going to hang you on a tree, and birds and ravens will come and eat your flesh. The baker said, well, I don't like that very much at all. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm just telling you exactly what God is about to do. And sure enough, in three days, it was Pharaoh's birthday. And in three days, Pharaoh exonerated the cupbearer and he executed the baker. And then we come to Genesis chapter 40, verse 23. But the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Can you believe that? It's only been three days since he accurately interpreted the dream. It's not like the cupbearer forgot. It's not like he just forgot it's been a long time ago. No, I don't know how long they've been in jail. They may have been in jail for years. But once Joseph accurately interpreted the dream, he said, three days from this point, you're going to be exonerated. Sure enough, three days came, three days went, and he was exonerated. But he failed to speak a kind word to Pharaoh about Joseph. Joseph must have been waiting for a good word to come from the court. He must have been waiting for a messenger to come and say, Pharaoh is asking for your audience. He was waiting for something to happen, something to move. 
Nothing happened. Joseph didn't move. He stayed right there in prison. The cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And then we come to Genesis chapter 41, verse 1. After two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. Are you kidding me? Two more years? I don't know how long Joseph had been in there, but I know that from that point on, two more years? Are you kidding me? He didn't do anything wrong. He did everything right. He's wasting away. He's rotting in jail. Two more years? That's 104 weeks. That's nearly 728 days. That's 17,520 hours. That's 1,051,200 minutes, but who's counting? That's a long time. Two full years. And Joseph still stays in prison. He must have been asking, God, what are you doing? God, what are you up to? Have you forgotten me too? Have you misplaced me? Have you lost me? Did you forget where you last planted me? Lord, here I am. I'm in jail. I, I, I'm here and I'm waiting on you. What are you doing? My friend, maybe you come into the sanctuary this morning and you kind of know how Joseph feels. Oh, you're not physically incarcerated in prison. But you may be incarcerated because of stress or worry. You may be overwhelmed with bad decisions. You, you, you may be consumed with relationship problems, financial difficulties, health concerns. You may be incarcerated in despair. You may be wanting and waiting for God to show up and to fix up the problem that's left you messed up. Maybe you're surrounded by a problem, predicament, prognosis. You're incarcerated by that. You're overwhelmed by that. And you're waiting for God to give you uh, good employment. You're waiting for God to heal your body. You're waiting for God to rescue your prodigal son or granddaughter. You're waiting for God to mend your marriage. You're waiting for God to alleviate your stress. You're waiting on God to do something. And it's been two full years. And you're still waiting. And you're still waiting. And you're still waiting. Maybe you know exactly how Joseph feels. He must have said what all of us would say. Why me? Why this? Why now? Isn't that what we say when we're in the midst of suffering and sadness and sickness? Isn't that, isn't that what we say when we're in the midst of a catastrophe? We say, why this? Why me? Why now? Why is this going on? I don't quite understand it. Oh, God, have you forgotten where you planted me? Lord, have you forgotten where you placed me? And what I want to submit to you this morning is that I think that God was giving Joseph some R&R. &R. I don't mean rest and relaxation. I mean readiness and refinement. God was making Joseph ready and refined for the task that he had for him. The Lord knew what Joseph needed. He knew where he was. God knew what was next in store for Joseph. 
God understood because he knows your future as certainly as he knows your past. In fact, your future is ancient history to God. God knows exactly where you are and who you are and what you're going through. And God knew that Joseph would be exonerated. Would he be be placed as the prime minister of all of Egypt, second in command over all the nation. He knew what he was up to, but it had to be in God's time and on God's way. So God was just giving Joseph some R&R. He was making him ready. He was refining him. He was doing what Job would say. For Job says that when God has finished testing me, I will come forth as pure gold. It's the image of smelting. It's that imagery of taking a glob of metal, subjecting it to heat, and that heat causes the dross, the impurities to rise to the top. An instrument is taken to scrape it away. What's left behind is a pure, precious metal. Job says, when God gets through with me, I will come forth as pure gold. That's why James said, count it pure joy when you encounter trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. It's the Apostle Paul who says in Romans 5, that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope never fails. It was C.S. Lewis who said, pain is God's megaphone. He whispers to us in pleasure. He speaks to us in our conscience but he shouts in our suffering. Pain is God's megaphone. Do you know what it is to suffer? Do you know what it is to experience pain? Do you know what it is to have problems that are insurmountable? Do you know what it is to feel as if everything is falling apart? If you know what it is to have pain, what is God saying to you? Because God never wastes a moment of your life. God is always speaking some truth into your life. It was Chuck Swindoll who said affliction is gold in the making for the child of God. And it is God who gets to determine how long the process takes. Affliction is gold in the making for the child of God. Because God is using affliction. He is using times of trial and testing. He is using that to burn away the dross, the impurities that reside inside of you and inside of me. And affliction is gold in the making in the hands of God. And it is God who gets to determine how long the process takes. As a child of God, you don't get to determine how long the process is. In fact, you don't even get to determine the process. The only thing you get to determine is how faithful am I going to be in the moment of testing. That's the only thing we get to choose. How faithful am I going to be? How faithful are you going to be? We don't get to determine the length of the testing. We don't get to determine and choose and pick and choose even the types of trials that we go through. And in fact, it is affliction that is gold in the making for the child of God. And it is God who gets to determine how long the process takes. Two full years had passed. And we don't find Joseph being bitter. We don't find him being angry. We don't find him wagging his finger in the face of God. We find Joseph being faithful unto the Lord. He's witnessing. He's worshiping. 
in the midst of suffering. He's witnessing and he's worshiping worshiping in the midst of discomfort, in the midst of wondering and, and asking God, where are you in all of this? All the while, he worships and he witnesses unto the Lord. This morning, I don't want you to misinterpret God's silence as God's absence. Because certainly you may not hear God speaking, but that doesn't mean that He's not speaking. You may not see God moving, but that doesn't mean that He's not moving. Don't ever misinterpret perceived silence as divine absence. Because it's been my observation that God has done some of His best work after moments of silence. Let me give you just a few examples. Exodus begins with the statement that tells us that a new Pharaoh came to power who knew not Joseph. And when he came to power, he saw the number of the Hebrews ever growing and he became fearful, so he enslaved them. And the people cried out unto the Lord. They cried out for God to redeem them, to rescue them. And eventually, after 400 years, God heard their cries. He remembered his covenant, and he was concerned about them. After 400 years, he raised up the man named Moses and said to Moses, go down to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, it is God who redeemed his children, brought them to the Red Sea and brought them through the Red Sea, took them back into the promised land, and God did it. So don't ever misinterpret God's silence as God's absence. Do you know the story of Job? It's a great story that's tucked away in the middle of the Old Testament. But don't let that mislead you, for Job is actually a contemporary of Abraham. He's one of the oldest stories in all the Bible. I say that because that's pretty important, because Job's story is a story of suffering. And suffering is part and parcel with the human condition. The story of Job shows us how to handle suffering. It's one of the oldest stories in all the Bible. Some of you remember that story well. Job was a righteous man. He was a wealthy man. And God talked about Job behind Job's back. Satan gained an audience with God and said, if you withhold your hand of blessing upon your servant Job, he will curse you and turn his back upon you. And the Lord said to Satan, you don't know Job the way I know Job. Well, can I test him? Yes, but you can't take his health. You can't take his life. Satan said, okay. So in one day, Job lost everything that mattered the most to him. His seven sons, his three daughters, his 7,000 sheep, his 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and his 500 donkeys and all of his barns to boot. He lost nearly the shirt off his back. He lost everything. His wife spoke to him and she said, Honey, why don't you just curse God and die? They must have had a great relationship, don't you think? After all, I did say that Job lost everything that mattered most to him, but his wife somehow survived. But anyway, <laughs> she said, why don't you just curse God and die? And he, in so many words, said, thank you for your loving support, but I think I'm going to just sit here and pray. 
And so Job sat there and he prayed. He sat in sackcloth and ashes, signs of, of grief. Three of his friends show up. When they came to the porch and they saw Job, they couldn't even recognize him. He was so grief-stricken. And for seven whole days, three friends just sat there and said nothing. That's the greatest thing that they did. And after a week, they opened their mouth. That's the worst thing that they did. For 35 chapters, they interrogated Job. Job, what did you do wrong? Job, what secret sin do you have? Job, what unconfessed uh, wickedness do you have in your heart? Job, God must have a vendetta against you. Job, God really has it out for you. Job, what did you do? For 35 chapters, they go nonsense, blah, 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 blah. And finally, in chapter 38, God speaks. And God just asks a handful of questions of Job. Job, where were you when I set the foundation of the world? Job, where were you when I taught the sun how to shine? Hey, Job, where were you when I told the ocean to only come so far? And the Scripture says that Job covered his mouth and said, I've been a foolish man. And he repented of his sin. In Job chapter 42, we are told that God blessed Job doublefold in the latter parts of his life than he did at the first of his life. What's the point? The point is don't ever mistake divine silence as divine absence. The last prophet to speak was a man by the name of Malachi. He stood up and said, thus saith the Lord, but he was the last one to proclaim God's word to God's people. And after Malachi died, the Lord self-imposed a gag order. And for 400 years, God did not raise another prophet. For 400 years, God's people did not hear the voice of God spoken through the man of God to the people of God by the power of God through the Spirit of God. For 400 years, there was divine silence. But don't misinterpret that as divine absence because 2,000 years ago on a starry night in Bethlehem, God showed up. He stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. And God came to earth to seek and to save that which is lost. He raised up one last prophet, the man by the name of John the Baptist. And John said, prepare the way for the Lord, for here he comes. And Jesus came, and he lived a perfect life, and he died on a cruel cross for your sins and for mine. And though he was dead, on the third day, he was raised again. In fact, the greatest demonstration of how we ought not to see divine silence as divine absence took place on Good Friday, when God the Son cried out to God the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's really quoting Psalm 22, the very next line of that psalm says why are you so far from saving me Jesus expected the father to say something and to do something but God said nothing and God apparently did nothing and on Friday Jesus died and his dead lifeless body was taken off the cross and placed in a borrowed tomb and a stone was rolled in front of it and it appeared as if God said nothing and did nothing on Friday and all day Saturday and even into Sunday but early Sunday morning Early Sunday morning, God spoke. Early Sunday morning, God did something that makes an eternal difference in your life and in mine. For early on Sunday morning, glorious Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead and he conquered sin and the grave, hell and death. And Jesus is victorious over all things. And Jesus burst forth with healing in his hands. Oh, my friend, don't ever misinterpret divine silence as divine absence. For the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians that God was reconciling the world of sinners unto himself, not counting men's sins against them, but in 
imputing their sins against Christ. So God was behind the scenes. He was moving. He was working even while Jesus was waiting. Because I got to tell you, don't ever misinterpret divine silence in your life as divine absence of God from your life. Two full years had passed. That's a mighty long time to wait for God. Some of you know exactly what that feels like. You've been waiting for two years. You've been waiting for five years. You've been waiting for a decade. You've been waiting for the salvation of your spouse. You've been waiting for employment. You've been waiting for your son or your daughter to come to their senses. And come back to God. You've been waiting. And you've been faithful in the waiting. You've been praying. You've been worshiping. You've been witnessing. You've been speaking the good news of Jesus to anyone who will listen. You're waiting. The only thing you have a choice in the matter is how faithful are you going to be in the moments of waiting. Two full years had passed. Then Pharaoh had a dream. Joseph was minding his own business. He was doing his daily chores in the dingy, dirty dungeon. And all of a sudden, a messenger came. Pharaoh has requested your presence. Joseph had to clean himself up and stand in the presence of Pharaoh. Apparently, that old cupbearer, who was now in the service of the king for some two years, Notice that one day Pharaoh looks sad. He said, Pharaoh, what's the matter? Why is your face downcast? He said, well, I had a dream and I can't figure it out. None of the magicians, the sorcerers, the religious people of our nation, no one can figure this out. But it plagues me. I've got to get to the bottom of this dream. And the cupbearer must have said, well, Pharaoh, I don't really want to remind you of this, but a couple of years ago, you got mad at me once. Uh, that's neither here nor there. Don't remember that part. But what I want you to remember is that while I was in jail, there was a Hebrew there by the name of Joseph. Now, I had a dream one night. I told him about it, and he accurately interpreted my dream. Maybe he can do the very same thing for you. And Pharaoh looked at the cupbearer and said, do you think so? I wonder if he's still alive. I don't know. We can go check and see. And so he sent word to Joseph. Joseph got cleaned up, and he stood in the very presence of Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, your reputation precedes you, young man. I've been told that you can interpret my dream. Can you do it? And Joseph stood there and said, I cannot. I read those words and I think, Joseph, what are you doing? You're on the cusp of freedom. What are you doing saying you can't do this? Joseph says, I cannot, but my God can. Who's he talking to? He's speaking to Pharaoh. Who did Pharaoh believe himself to be? He believed himself to be a god. He's speaking to one who's a pagan deity. He's speaking to one that others regarded as a god. And what Joseph is saying is, you ain't no god. You can't even figure out your own dreams. I can't do it, but my god can. I can't fix you, but my god can. Church, you know what? We only have one message to our culture. We say to the culture, I can't fix you, but my god can. I can't put you back together, but my god can. I can't make you holy, but my god can. I can't help you, but my God can. All we can do is say, I can't do it, but I know the one who can. His name is Jesus. 
Don't miss that whether Joseph is in prison or in the palace, whether he's speaking to the cupbearer or whether he's speaking to Pharaoh, he's bearing witness to the goodness and the glory of God because God is good all the time and all the time God is good. He's good in prison and he's good in the palace. He's good when you speak to the cupbearer. He's good when you gain the audience of Pharaoh. All the time God is good and God is good all the time. So Joseph stands up and he says, I can't do it. But my God can so bring it on. What you got? Pharaoh said, well, I had a dream. I was standing in front of the Nile River. And all of a sudden, seven fat, sleek cows came out of the Nile River. And then right on their heels came seven of the ugliest cows you've ever laid eyes on. They were scrawny. They were uh, thin, and then those seven scrawny cows ate the seven fat cows. And once they did that, you could even tell they had gained an ounce. I woke up, didn't make any sense, put my head back on my holy pillow, and I went back to sleep. And then I had another dream, Pharaoh says. I was standing there, and there was a, a stalk of grain and that one singular, single stalk of grain had seven full heads of grain. Oh, they were plump and they were full. They were beautiful. And then there was a second stalk of grain. Those seven heads were scorched by the sun and withered by the east wind. And all of a sudden in my dream, those seven scorched heads of grain ate the seven full heads of grain. And once they did that, you couldn't even tell they were just as ugly and scrawny and scorched as they've ever been. I woke up. I don't know what any of that means. And Joseph says, I can tell you what it means. God has given you one in the same dream. He's told you the same thing twice. Not because God has a stuttering problem, but he's told it to you twice so that you'll know this is bound to happen. The two dreams are one and the same. It's the same dream. The seven fat cows are like the seven full heads of grain. The seven scrawny cows are like the seven skinny cows or skinny uh, heads of grain. There's going to be seven years of prosperity. Every farmer is going to have a bumper crop. Then, on the heels of that, there's going to be seven years of famine. It's going to be terrible. In fact, uh, if I were you, Pharaoh, during the seven years of prosperity, I would impose a 20% tax. I would tax every farmer. I'd bring in 20% of their, their, of their uh, crop. I would store it. And that way, you'll have grain to sell to them, give to them during the seven years of famine, and not only to your own people, but also to the surrounding nations, because this famine is going to be really bad. So if I was in charge, that's what I would do. I would take uh, 20% uh, during the seven years of prosperity, store it away, and then seven years of famine, then I'd sell it off. And on top of that, you'd probably make a profit even uh, with all of that. So that, that's what I would do. And Pharaoh said, wow, that's a, this is a smart guy. Who can we put in charge of this project? He looked around to everybody in the court and nobody else could uh, handle the situation or the pressure or the moment. So he looks to Joseph and he says, I'll put you in charge. 
except for my throne, you will be the greatest person in the kingdom of Egypt. What's he saying? He's saying that he's going to make an ex-con the prime minister of Egypt. He's going to make somebody who was just in jail as the second person in command over the entire nation. Can you imagine selecting or electing a criminal to be the president or prime minister of a country? Wait a minute. That's another sermon for another day. Need I digress? But that's exactly what Pharaoh did. Pharaoh said to Joseph, you are now in charge. You're the second in command. You're prime minister of all of Egypt. And the Lord was with Joseph. You read the book of Genesis. And it's clear that God is not a senile savior. God is not a forgetful professor. He knows exactly where his people are. In fact, he remembers his people. That's stated over and over. In Genesis 8, God remembered Noah. In Genesis 19, God remembered Abraham. In Genesis 30, God remembered Rachel. And here in our story, God remembers Joseph. There's a Jewish proverb that says, the cupbearer may have forgotten Joseph, but God remembered him. My friend, I want you to know God knows exactly where you are. He knows your suffering. He knows your affliction. He knows your sorrow. He knows the difficulty. He knows the problem. He knows the last place he planted you. He has not lost you. He knows exactly where you are. When he needed to retrieve Joseph, he went right to the prison because that's the last place that God put Joseph. God is not forgetful. God remembers his people. Cancer may forget that you have dignity, but God remembers you. Your spouse may forget her marriage vows, but God remembers you. Your children may forget your valuable instruction, but God remembers you. Your boss may forget that you need the extra hours, but God will remember you. A bad economy may forget that you still have bills to pay, but God will remember you. Grief may forget that you have to get out of bed tomorrow and live, but God will remember you. Suffering just might forget that you are a son and daughter of the king, but God will remember you. God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. God will never forget you. He knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what he's up to. He knows what you're doing. He knows what he's doing. And while you're waiting for God to show up, I want you to witness unto his goodness and his greatness. I want you to witness whether you're standing in front of a cupbearer or whether you're standing in front of Pharaoh himself. I want you to witness to whoever it is saying, I can't fix it, but God can. While you wait, you worship. While you wait, you you witness while you wait on God you know that God is going to show up and God is going to fix it so you can witness and worship and wait knowing full well that God is working have faith in God he's on his throne have faith in God he watches over his own he cannot fail he must prevail have faith in God have faith 
in God. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. While you wait, know that God is at work. And while he's working, you witness to his goodness and his glory in your life. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. And Jesus, if there's one here who does not know you as Savior, I pray that today will be the day of their salvation. If there's somebody here who needs to be part of this faith family, please draw them. If there's somebody here who is struggling with affliction of various kinds, trials, trouble, oh, Father, I pray that they will wait on you as you work. The altar's open. Draw your people unto yourself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.